welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. I'm Kenna. I'm Koel. Oh my god. <laughs> the whole week has just been madness yeah, it has. with these cases. It really has. And if you are a Patreon member, we definitely want to say thank you so much for supporting us monetarily. But also, you guys get two insanely long, insanely yeah. awesome episodes in the same day. Dahmer and Bundy. Well, I guess maybe this one will come out a little bit afterward. I would say maybe like 12 to 20 hours after the Patreon yeah. episode. But yeah. Yeah, so you guys are going to get those both on the um, same day. This is going to be part two of Ted Bundith. Bundith. Yeah. <laughs> so just want to also uh, mention our regular listeners. You guys are so awesome. And I know that you guys have been waiting for part two as well. So we're really excited yeah. to bring it to you. We love doing part twos. Yeah. Yeah. Elliot Roger was a trip. Now we get Bundith part yeah, two. Bundith. And we've done some yeah. in the past as well. So <laughs> definitely listen to those and give us your feedback. If you guys like part two, like two parters, or if you want like one super long episode, we will we'll play around with yeah. some ideas. <laughs> Meanwhile, you can check us out at DiagnosingAKiller.com. There you will have links to merch and resources and events, including the True Crime and Paranormal Festival podcast festival here in Austin in August, late August, which will be our two-year anniversary weekend. It will be, and Mm -hmm. I took Friday off work already, so I got it approved. I'm not going to have to work on Friday. So that's super, super exciting. Catch us on social medias at Diagnosing a Killer. Other than Twitter, it is at Killer Diagnosis. We have an Instagram. We have a Patreon. We have a... What else do we have? We have Twitter. Do you say Twitter, Twitter already? Yeah, Sorry. Twitter. <laughs> we just got to zone down there for a We don't have a Facebook. We don't have a Facebook, but Facebook's like too public. I feel like a lot of people can access because like you can't make an account. You have mm. to make like a group like page Ew. and then like people can post on it and stuff so oh. i'm like i'd rather just control everything so like that's not totally <laughs> <my Yeah>. <laughs> totally no but thank you guys again like seriously for all your support we have been getting a lot of really great reviews and feedback and all that good stuff heck yeah and let's get into this fucking part it's two because dizzy. it's been a fucking minute oh i want to hear this content warning oh god content warning this episode contains depictions of brutal sexual assault sometimes including minors graphic necrophilia and suicide If this episode is not for you, we encourage you to check out another one of our episodes. Remember, your mental health is very important to us, and we love you. We love you. Bye. Bye. So, when we last left off, we were talking about the fact that Bundy had committed one of his many murders Mm -hmm. and had returned to the crime scene with things taped off and people kind of in the area and was not able to be seen somehow. Yeah. And then he took like, uh, what did he take? Like keys or something? He took an earring and one of her shoes. And both of her earrings and one of her shoes. Okay. So last thing I said was that homicide detective Robert Keppel will hear his name a lot in this next episode or this episode. He stated about this quote, it was a feat so brazen that it astonishes police even today. End quote. (laughs) So, again, that was talking about Ted's seventh victim, Georgian Hawkins, who he would later admit to visiting her deceased body on three occasions. After Georgian's disappearance, eyewitnesses would come forward and report seeing a man in an alley behind a nearby dorm on the night of her disappearance. <laughs> this man was on crutches, wearing a leg cast, and was struggling to carry a briefcase. I just don't understand, like, okay, because we talked about that last episode, yeah. too, where it's like, he always seems to be 
like, oh, 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 like, yeah. bumbling around, but it's like, why would you choose to even carry the briefcase when you know you can't carry it, you know? Well, it's not even that. It's like, who struggles to carry a briefcase? Like, what's in there? <laughs> with crutches? <laughs> oh, you know, I guess true. With <laughs> His hands are busy. It's not the weight, it's the... But it's he could just... get one of those, like, scooters or something? Yeah, exactly, yeah. like a little scooter. That's what I was yeah. thinking. I mean, like, that's uh... his thing. That's, <laughs> that's his, thing. his thing. Pretend to be, you know, disabled for the moment, or right. temporarily disabled. But what's... what's ironic about it or weird about it is the fact that you would think that you would want to be so inconspicuous that yeah. you wouldn't put it on a big display like that. Yeah, you wouldn't want to draw attention. That's how brazen he actually is. Yeah. Is the fact that he's drawing attention to himself in order to not draw attention to himself. He's like, I'm just going to be extra casual and then <laughs> no one will even soups suspect cash. it. <laughs> like extra mega soups cash. Yeah, for real. <laughs> so one woman, another eyewitness, would actually add that the man asked her for help carrying the case to his car, which was a light brown Volkswagen Beetle. During this time, Ted was still working in Olympia at the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission, now as the assistant director. Hmm. So he's like in crime prevention, yeah. actively committing crimes. <laughs> he's like, God, Dexter. look at these probes out here. Yeah. He's Dexter. He would actually go on to write a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. <gasps> yeah. Oh my god, that is terrible. He's the worst. Oh my gosh, it's the worst. Ted would later get a job at the Department of Emergency Services, a state government agency involved in the search for missing women. Like, okay. <laughs> it was here at this de- uh, Department of Emergency Services that Ted would meet and begin dating a woman by the name of Carol Ann Boone. A twice-divorced mother of two who would remain in his life for a while after this. Hmm. So let's remember that name. Carol Boone. Yeah. It's not Sarah Boone's mom, is it? I don't... I don't know. Suitcase lady? Ugh, oh. stand her. <laughs> You're right. It's not. It's Ugh, she's such an idiot. She's so callous. Yeah, that's Ugh. the one that... She put her boyfriend in a suitcase because yeah. she thought it was, like, a punishment or something. She's like, oh, you got you. Yeah, and then he died. And then, like, now she's currently petitioning with the judge not to get, like, two sidebar, but she's petitioning with the judge right now because she's like, I demand, uh, you know, being able to talk to my attorney whenever I want. And I've called his office multiple times. And, like, he's working on the case for you. He's busy. Yeah, (laughs) seriously. But she just, oh, gosh. And then she she essentially pen pals the judge like they're friends. Oh, my gosh. And it's just, she's just arrogant. Ugh. Aren't they all? (laughs) very much dislike her. So again, at this time, uh, working at this new job, Ted would meet Carol Boone and begin dating her. Around this time as well, many reports of missing women and the brutal attack on Karen Sparks were appearing in the newspapers. When I stated in part one that she did not speak out about the assault until nearly 50 years later, remember that? I told you, I told yeah, you I that so. she said that. I actually think her identity was still hidden. Mm. So she had spoken about the assault previously, but then came out with her identity Later. Recently, yes, oh, okay. exactly. Yeah. So it's not that she waited all this time to mm-hmm. talk about it at all. So I was mistaken. So due to these news stories around the area, many women gave up hitchhiking and were becoming even more aware of their surroundings as well. Yeah, the 70s ruined hitchhiking. They really did. We talked about that in Dahmer, too. <laughs> Pressure began to mount on law enforcement, but with little to no evidence, they didn't really even know where to start. Police would not provide even the little bit of information they did have about this suspect in the media in fear that he would flee and never be located. Further similarities about the victims began to surface, giving potential victims a warning. So on July 14th, uh, just a reminder to everyone that's not listening back-to-back, this is 1974, two women were abducted from a crowded beach at Lake Sammamish Sammamish State Park in, I think it's Issaquah? 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 Yeah, it's like I S S A Q U A H. 
Issaca. I think it's Issaca. What was the smash, smash, man? What was it? Sm- uh, Smamish. Sma- Sammish. Sa- sa- sandwich. Sammish. Sammish. I don't know. Sammish. Sammish. Okay, whatever. In- Sorry if you're Isqua. from Sammish. Yeah. <laughs> Iqua. Janice Ott was a 23-year-old juvenile court worker who lived in Isqua. At the time of her disappearance, her husband Jim was studying in California. Janice and her husband had reportedly been going through a separation at this time, so on July 14, 1974, she decided to take a day trip to the beach by herself to relax. After leaving a note for her roommate that she would return around 4.30, Janice took off on her yellow bicycle and headed for Lake Samash. Sam. <laughs> Sam Mash. It's like Samamish, I think. It's Samamish. Sam- Samamish. Because it's like S-A-M-M-A-M-I-S-H. Samamish. Right? Sam- Sam- Samamish. Sammamish. Sammamish makes sense, doesn't it? Sammamish. We'll just call it that. All right. Email us. About 20 minutes after she got settled, Ted spotted Janice and approached her. Moments before this, he had actually attempted to lure another woman named Janice Graham away from the park. After introducing himself to first Janice and claiming that his arm was injured, he asked her if she could help him unload a sailboat. Thinking that the boat was just around the corner in the parking lot, she followed him but then decided to distance herself when she was asked by Ted to get into his Volkswagen Beetle. At this point, Ted said, quote, that's okay, and admitted that he should have been a little bit more specific about where the boat was located. He was trying to, like, tell him, hey, can you come help, help me load a sailboat so he can yeah. get in the parking lot? And then he was like, oh, it's at my parents' house. Like, come with me and help me. And she yeah. was like, pass. Yikes. Hard pass. So again, this is a different Janice. The Janice he is spotted now is the one with her husband, and she is taking the day trip alone. Janice mm-hmm. Ott. Ted turned his attention to her, the woman laying on the towel, alone. And after approaching her, Ted gave her the same runaround and explained that his arm was injured from playing racquetball. Oh, I'm just such a racquetball enthusiast. (laughs) However, this time he modified his story a bit and did share originally that his boat was located at his parents' house in Issaca. Although Janice was friendly towards Ted, she was making it pretty obvious that she didn't want to leave the beach. She had just gotten there. According to onlookers, Ted was very insistent And judging by witness accounts, a snippet of the conversation was actually able to be put together. Hmm. Janice, sit down and we can talk about it. Ted, it's up at my parents' house in Issaca. Janice, oh really? I live in Issaca. Well, okay, I don't know how to sail, though. Ted responds, it'll be easy for me to teach you. Janice, is there room for my bicycle in the car? Ted, yes, it'll fit in the trunk. End of conversation. Hmm. At this point, Janice had gotten up and began to redress herself. She then stated, quote, Okay, I'll go. Under one condition, I get a ride in the sailboat. End quote. Ted responded, quote, Of course, my car is over there in the parking lot. End quote. To which Janice replied, quote, I guess I'll get to meet your parents then. Oh, very this, fast. Yeah. This would be the last time that anybody saw Janice alive, unfortunately. Wow. It's, like, so scary. Like, people like, overheard this conversation just thinking it was, like, just casual. Just thinking it was, yeah. Yeah. On September 6th, two hunters would discover her skeletal remains scattered across a grassy patch of land in a wooded area near Issaco. Denise Marie Noslin was a 19-year-old student who was studying software development during night school. During the day, she worked part-time as an office worker. And at the time of her death, Denise was dating a man by the name of Ken Little, who had arrived with her around 1 p.m., along with another couple, at Lake Sammamish on the day of her disappearance, July 14th. The couple that they were with was Bob Sargent and Nancy Batma, or Batima, I don't know how to pronounce words, I'm sorry. (laughs) Shortly after 4 p.m., Ken and Bob fell asleep after having a big lunch, and Denise shared with Nancy that she was not feeling so great and she was going to use the restroom. 
So it was at this point that Denise left and walked towards the restrooms, but was never seen alive again. <gasps> she just, like, was like, oh, I'll be right back going to the bathroom. Yeah. That is terrifying. I know. It's so scary. Could you imagine, like, that whole time you're sitting there and you're like, gosh, she's been in the bathroom for a while. Think she you go know? check on her? Could somebody go check on her? And then she's just not in there? Yeah. <gasps> that's so scary. So throughout eyewitness testimonies and stuff and, of course, Ted's confessions later on, detectives were able to determine that at some point, Denise was approached by Ted, who had returned to the same lake to look for another victim after taking Janice away. Eight weeks later, her skeletal remains were discovered alongside Janice's. That's Denise. Wow. The afternoon wore on July 14th, and Denise's boyfriend and friends hung around to wait for her to return. While all other cars were leaving the parking lot and Denise's remained, her boyfriend Ken began to worry and decided to report her missing to a park ranger. Like, can you imagine that? Like, everyone else is leaving and her car's still there. Just one by one, one by one. <sighs> Despite the women going missing from college campuses over the last few months, the disappearances from the lake came as a shock to everyone. In this case, an unidentified man calling himself Ted had seemingly abducted two women from broad daylight from the same place in the same day. Okay. Why are you going to call yourself Ted? Like, wait. <laughs> For real? Like, come on. It could be anybody. And he's just like, no, I'm Ted. No. That's, I'm, I'm just sorry. Ted. <laughs> it's like so silly. Like, it is. But, like, I mean, again, that's how ballsy bold he is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not only in the same day did these two women disappear, but within three and a half hours of each other. Oh, my God. It's like, he literally just kidnapped one, did whatever, kidnapped, like, yeah. came back, kidnapped another one. Ugh. Yeah. And Just this particular day was actually extremely busy with nearly 40,000 guests waiting to soak up the sunshine. I mean, it's the middle of summer. Yeah. This gave way for many eyewitnesses. So four female witnesses described an attractive young man wearing a white tennis outfit with his left arm in a sling, speaking with a slight accent, perhaps Canadian or British, because he couldn't get it right <laughs> either way. Hey, what's this all about, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Three of these women would refuse to when he asked them for help, and the fourth was Janice Graham, the one that would flee after getting to the car. Mm -hmm. Of course, the witnesses that overheard the beach conversation between Janice and Ted would come forward, and Ted would later tell Stephen McCowd and William Hangmeyer that Janice was still alive when he returned with Denise, and that he forced one to watch as he murdered the <gasps> other, but he would later deny this on the eve of his execution. So he just said it for, like, shock factor, apparently. Huh. Okay. Just Richard a reminder. Ramirez. Yeah. Just a reminder to everyone, uh, Stephen McCowd is a biographer, and he's a, I think he's a doctor, and William Hangmeyer, I don't know exactly what he is, but I'll, he'll come back in the story later. <laughs> but these are people that like, he interviewed with, like, after he was in prison. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Post-conviction. Exactly. So, following these attacks, police were able to get a pretty decent composite sketch of the suspect and his car, and they would post flyers throughout the Seattle area. Yeah, he looked like Weird Al Yankovic or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these... Uh, sketches were also posted in regional newspapers and broadcast on local TV stations. Four people close to Ted, including Anne Rule, his old coworker, the, the co and also the writer, the writer, the and Elizabeth uh, Colfer, his ex-girlfriend, recognized that the photo kind of looked a lot like him well, and decided like to report it to police. And also, he called himself Ted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this guy says his name's Ted. Do you know anybody, Do you know named, anybody Ted named Ted, Ted that drives that looks like this, this car? <laughs> that drives this car? Yeah. kind of looks like Ted. So getting over 200 tips per day, police would actually rule Ted out as a suspect, 
as they thought it was highly unlikely that a clean-cut law student with no adult criminal record could possibly be the perpetrator. Oh, Jesus. And, and of course, the perpetrator probably wouldn't use his real name. Yeah, exactly. So, Why would he do that? That's so that's lame. so lame. You Who know, Ted's a very common that? name. Ted Theodore. Theodore Bundeth. <laughs> yeah, it's just silly, because, like, you hear those things in hindsight, and you're like, yeah, maybe if you, like, took those call seriously like he wouldn't have murdered like 20 more people right you know? if you had just looked in his basement seriously it'll be over Dahmer. <laughs> Dahmer. if you just look behind that bedroom door seriously six months after the remains of denise and janice were found forestry students from the green river community college discovered the skulls and jawbones of four of ted's previous victims unfortunately the remains of donna manson were never recovered even though she had said that he dumped her body there as well yeah in August 1974, Ted received a second a- acceptance from the University of Utah Law School and would move to Salt Lake City, leaving Liz in Seattle. Hmm. Although he called Liz often, Ted would admit to dating, quote, at least a dozen other women as well during this time. So not only is he, like, the worst person alive, but he's also a cheater and a yeah, dog. Well, he, so this is Liz, like, his ex-ex-girlfriend. Remember, he, yeah. he tried to get back, he did get back with that other ex just to see if he could marry her, yeah. and then he left her. And then, uh. of course, he's dating Carol at this time, too. Ugh. Remember Carol Boone? Don't forget about her. Don't forget about Carol Boone. Yeah. As he began his first year of law school for the second time, he was devastated to find out that the students at this university, quote, had something, some intellectual capacity that he did not. Ooh, so he felt inadequate? He did. For, like, the first time? He found himself completely lost in the classes there, stating that it was, quote, a great disappointment to me, end quote. Homicides began happening once again in the vicinity of Ted. (laughs) That's not funny. (laughs) It's not funny, but just the fact that he's like, oh, like, clearly this isn't going to work out. I might as well just go hurt more people. Exactly. Including two that would remain undiscovered until until Ted confessed to them shortly before his execution. Sorry, I put my hand, like, in front of my mouth, and then it muffled me. <laughs> On September 2nd, 1974, Ted would sexually assault and strangle a woman after picking her up hitchhiking in Idaho, then either dispose of her remains immediately in a nearby river or return to the next day to take photos of the corpse. He said both in the past. That he didn't future. know which one he couldn't remember specifically? Um, I, I think it was more of, like, he said one thing, and then he, like, changed his statement about it I like see. i don't know if he's like oh, i don't remember but, like he just kind of like you got in shock factor yeah thing. the identity of this woman would actually never be found out awesome. on october 2nd ted would abduct 16 year old nancy wilcox in holiday utah a suburb of salt lake city she would vanish after leaving her home the same day and her parents would quickly think that she had run away and would report this to police Nancy being the victim of an abduction especially one that was connected to the recent disappearances was not on anybody's radar and due to this, the Sheriff's Juvenile Division did not release a public statement until December. So how long? Two months. What? They were like, oh, well, he, the people that have been disappearing are college students. She's 16. And her parents report her runaway. So they were like, obviously, she's a runaway. Oh, my God. That's awful. Wasn't that Tony's mom, I think it was, right? Yeah. Anthony's mom, I think it was, in the Dahmer story. They waited four fucking weeks. Yeah. Four it's weeks. Disgusting. Because they were like, oh, you know, he was in a homosexual relationship. And that's, you know, like, that's awful. Even when they did release a statement about Nancy's disappearance, they were sure to stress the fact that Nancy may have still been a runaway. They're like, just to let everyone know, she's probably a runaway. <laughs> we're gonna but let's do just this, cover our asses. We're just and gonna post do this anyways, just to, yeah, just to be sure. And because it's what you guys want, but 
We're telling you right now, she's a runaway. Wow. It wasn't until other young girls started disappearing that Nancy was connected to this case at all. Unfortunately, Nancy's remains were never found, and her case remains open today. Still? Still. Ted did, however, confess to her murder shortly before his death. There's just no evidence to fully close the case, because there's no body. Yeah. On October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, the 17-year-old daughter of the police chief of Middale, (gasps) disappeared after leaving a pizza parlor. God, the balls on this fucker. Her nude body would be found in a nearby mountainous area just nine days after her disappearance. Postmortem examinations would later determine that she may have been kept alive for nearly seven days before her death. <gasps> so this is, like, completely different than what he's been yeah, doing. Yeah, because it's usually very quick. Yes. On October 31st, Laura Ann Aim, also 17, disappeared 25 miles south of where Melissa did. Laura was last seen leaving a cafe just after midnight. There are a lot of conflicting accounts of what happened after Laura was last seen, but what we do know is that Ted met up with her at some point and lured her into his vehicle. Like on a date or something, maybe? Um, I want to say she needed, like, a ride home or something. And okay. And he maybe had offered. But I might be mixing it up with a different person. Okay. But either way, you know, he's very casual and he's very convincing. Yeah. He's like, he's like hey. oh my god, I love your skirt. Where did you get it? Yeah. And he's like, yeah. He's like Regina George. Yeah. <laughs> he is. He's Regina George. So, unfortunately, Laura's nude body would be found by hikers nine miles northeast on Thanksgiving Day. Just so awful. <gasps> Both Melissa and Laura had been sodomized, raped, and strangled with nylon stockings. Years later, Ted would describe his postmortem rituals with both girls, including hair shampooing and application of makeup. Interesting. Like a mortician or something. Yeah. In the late afternoon of... No- and we'll get into more of that later. In the late afternoon of November 8th, 1974, Ted would approach 18-year-old Carol Durange at Fashion Place Mall in Murray. Carol was a telephone operator when she was introduced to Ted. He would identify himself as Officer Roseland, however, and explained that he was a member of the Murray Police Department. He told her that somebody had attempted to break into her car. Because she's at the mall, right? So he's he's like, like, I came to find you. Ma'am, I ran the registration on your vehicle, and I know exactly what you look like. Yeah, I just happened to spot you out of this fucking huge crowd of (laughs) people. Out of a mall. And somebody tried to break into your car, you must come with me, ma'am. Yes. So he asked her to accompany him to the station to file a formal complaint. Thinking that he was a genuine officer, Carol complied and got into Ted's vehicle with him. When Carol pointed out to Ted that he was driving down a wrong road and not headed towards the police station, he pulled the car onto the shoulder and attempted to handcuff her. Oh my god, that's fucking scary. No. Carol began to fight Ted, and during the struggle, Ted accidentally attached both handcuffs to the same wrist on Carol. Oh, okay. So she's free, technically. Following this, Carol was able to escape the vehicle and run away. Bad bitch. So she would survive. Later that evening, November 8th, 1974, 17-year-old Viewmont High School student Deborah Jean Kent disappeared after leaving a theater production at school to pick up her brother. This was 20 miles north of Murray. So he so traveled he drove 20 all miles the way up there. The same night. The school's drama teacher and a student would later tell police that, quote, a stranger had asked each of them to come out to the parking lot to identify a car. Another student would say that she saw the same man pacing in the back of the auditorium. Outside the auditorium, investigators would find a key that unlocked the handcuffs removed from Carol's <gasps> wrist. <laughs> so now they know that they're, like, connected. 
<laughs> right? Uh, I know. Heebies. Oof. I know. According to the witnesses, there was a loud screaming coming from the parking lot of the school around the time that Deborah was last seen, and one person reportedly saw a light-colored Volkswagen bug speed away from the school. Unfortunately, Deborah would become yet another victim of Ted's, and her remains would not be identified until 2015, wow. when a patella was assumed to be hers, which is a kneecap for those that don't know, and was able to be positively identified as such. So that's all that they found of her. Just kneecap. a kneecap. The same month Deborah would be murdered, November, Liz, his ex-girlfriend, would call King County Police a second time after <laughs> reading that young women were now disappearing in Salt Lake City, where She's Ted like- moved. <laughs> She's like, hey, by the way. Poor woman. She's yeah. like, no, I'm, I'm telling you, like, it's him. It's him. Yeah. So why don't you go, just go get him. Just go get him. So Liz, of course, had known that Ted was living in the area, and she did not think it was a coincidence that the crimes moved with him. <laughs> God. And he looks like the composite sketch, yeah. and his name is fucking Ted. And he drives the same car. And he drives the same car. I'm going to butcher this last name again, but Detective Randy Herdsheimer of the Major Crimes Unit interviewed Liz around this time. At this point, Ted was considered high on the suspect list for the disappearances. However, witnesses in the Lake Shamamish abductions were unable to identify him via a photo lineup, so oh. police didn't really have any solid evidence to bring him in. That's so what they said. Nobody was able to positively ID, ID him. From the Lake disappearances. From, yeah. Yes. Okay. So she's trying to call in both towns, right, saying this was him and this was him, but they can't compare the two, so they really don't have anything to go on. <sighs> I know, it sucks. In December, Liz would contact authorities once more and repeated her suspicions of Ted. Police would then officially add Ted to the suspect list in Salt Lake City, but at that time, there was no credible evidence to arrest him for the Utah crimes either. Mm-hmm. So he's still out about. Yeah. I mean, it just sucks. It's like they're trying to work within the confines of the law. Yeah. But it's... But she's like, like I more have people... the evidence in my head. Like, yeah. <laughs> but more people essentially have to die for this man yeah, to be caught. Yeah, really which shitty. Is awful. At this point, Liz and Ted were actually still seeing each other occasionally. Because, again, remember, he's dating all these women at once. <laughs> she comes out with, like, a legal pad, and she's like, mm-hmm, oh, uh, yeah. Exactly. And where, what did you do and last you? Thursday at <laughs> 7? <Yeah. laughs> but, of course, they weren't living in the same place. So they didn't see each other all the time. In January of 1975, Ted would return to Seattle after his final exams and would spend an entire week with Liz. While she still did have her suspicions, of course, she did not tell Ted that she had phoned police about him several times. <laughs> I just, like, like, how do you break it off? How do you have him spend the week at your house? Well, you're probably scared, right? You're thinking, if I break up with him, he's going to do something Or you're thinking, like, maybe I'm just, like, overreacting. Maybe that's not him. Maybe it's just a coincidence, you know? I love him. After this visit, Ted would make plans to visit Liz again later that year in August. The same month, in January of 1975, Ted would find yet another victim... 23-year-old Karen Campbell was heading to her hotel room in Aspen, Colorado, when she disappeared. She had been walking down a well-lit hallway between the elevator and her room at the Wildwood Inn, making it clear that Ted was becoming very good at charming women and convincing them to leave their safe places. Just, like, in the hallway. Karen was actually on vacation with her fiancé at the time of her abduction. <gasps> no! And she oh, was abducted literally, like, feet from their hotel room door. That is heartbreaking. That's I have, like, full body heaves. Like, that's so scary. <sighs> Ted like, would abduct Karen and ultimately murder her via blows to the head and deep wounds from a sharp weapon. That's just, you're so right. That's incredible that he can literally, like, charismatically gain someone's trust within yeah. seconds, minutes. Yeah, yeah, maybe. 
Karen's nude body would be found nearly a month later next to a dirt road just outside the resort. What? Yeah, yeah. Nearly a month later, just outside the resort. <laughs> it's like an oxymoron. <laughs> a few months later, on March 15th, 26-year-old Julia Cunningham disappeared while walking from her apartment to a dinner date with a friend. Ted would later admit to authorities that he approached Julia while on crutches, asking her to help him carry his ski boots to his car. <laughs> God, this guy. Yeah. Julia was actually an employee at the ski shop, so it wasn't unusual for members to ask for help. Heard, yeah. And okay, I'm sure he sense. fucking knew that. Yeah. Once at his car, Ted clubbed and handcuffed Julia before sexually assaulting her and unfortunately strangling her to death. This happened about 90 miles west of Vail, Colorado, just to put it in perspective, because yeah. he was in Aspen as right, well Aspen. with the other one. Yeah. Oh, I see. With Karen, yeah. He also admitted that weeks after this murder, he would take it upon himself to make the nearly six-hour drive from Salt Lake City to visit her deceased body. Like, what? That's... I mean, it's got to be giving him a complex that he's been able to get away with all of these yeah. murders, and it's, like, seemingly easy to get these women to trust him with or, the occasional, yeah. like, screw-up, but... Well, the fact that he keeps re revisiting their bodies or, you know, the dump sites and all that other stuff that... Uh, yeah, clearly he's like, I want to relive be being able to get away with it, you know? Exactly. Because like, he talks I can about that later, too. go check them out whenever I want, because I know nobody's going to find them. Exactly. And I know nobody's going to link them to me. God, it's so gross. What a fucking narcissist. Oh, yeah. 25-year-old Denise Lynn Oliverson disappeared near the Utah-Colorado border in Grand Junction on April 6th, 1975. She was abducted while riding her bike to her parents' house. Her bike and sandals were later found near a railroad bridge. And that's essentially all we really know about that. Mm. On April 15th, 1975, 18-year-old Melanie Cooley disappeared on her way home from high school. Her body would later be found bludgeoned to death with a rock. Do you think that he switched up the ages because it, it, it changes the MO just I a little so. bit? Yeah. I think so. So Ted had actually been suspected of her murder, but he would never confess, and her case is also still open today. Mm. On May 6th, Ted would kidnap 12-year-old Lynette Dawn Culver 12? in Pocatello, Idaho, 160 miles north of Salt Lake City. He drove He's all like the way out all there. over the place. He would bring this girl into his hotel room, where he would ultimately drown her in the tub and dispose of her body in a river north of Pocatello. Twelve. I know it's hard. Twelve. He would not specify which river this was, but investigators believe it may have been the Snake River, but she was never found. In mid-May, three of Ted's Washington State DES co-workers visited him in Salt Lake City and would stay a week with him in his apartment. Three? Three co of his co-workers, yeah. Okay. Which is, I'm putting that in there mostly because, like, there's no way he has no evidence in his apartment. I and see. And three different people stayed with him for a week. A week. And he was still able to get away with this shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just crazy. He would then spend a week with Liz in early June, and the two would even discuss plans to get married the following Christmas. Oh my god, this guy. Liz keeping her secret about her police visits the entire time. She was like, yeah, I'm gonna marry you. Liz Aww. was not the only one keeping secrets, however, as Ted did not disclose to her that he was dating three other women at the same, at the same time as well. Jesus. <laughs> it's like H.H. H. Holmes, right? It was like he yeah. was traveling across, you know, different state lines and just marrying women and, and, and yeah know, but his was all greed well i mean we're not gonna put it past him to keep three women a secret when he's murdering like all these oh, other women yeah, you know course. like yeah. He, he's yeah. not worried about lying about dating i just think it's interesting that with a lot of serial killers like you know we talk about like btk or uh, any other i don't know btk is a good example that he dennis raider would marry and settle into a family life but it's 
again, it's just so brazen yeah. of Ted to have multiple relationships and also be a serial killer yeah. because any one of these chicks could just rat on you yeah. for one little tiny thing. Exactly. And, you know, most serial killers that we've done before have covered in the past, again, they settle down with one family because that's 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 what makes me normal. That's your beard, yeah. Yeah, that's your beard, exactly. And like, Ted doesn't need a beard. He doesn't want a beard. He's too charismatic. He's yeah. too narcissistic. He's, I mean, too, he's narcissistic. too arrogant. Like, there's literally no other explanation yeah. for it. He's just he thinks like, he's smarter than everyone. He and unfortunately, thinks, he has been up until now. Yeah. He thinks he looks like the stereotypical ladies' man. Yeah. Ugh. Which he's not really that good. I mean, he's, like, not bad-looking, but, like, he has a unibrow. Or I know, but a unibrow. He, every dude in the 70s had a unibrow. Did you Tommy Lee Jones? That's true. Eyes, eyes of Laura Mars? That's very true. He had a righteous unibrow. Righteous. <laughs> he was still hot, though. <laughs> okay, back to the story. On June 28th, 15-year-old Susan Curtis was abducted by Ted in Prague, 45 miles south of Salt Lake City. She would be the last murder that Ted would confess to before his execution, but unfortunately, her remains would also never be located. And her case is still regarded as a missing persons case as of today. I also think that's a, a testament to how narcissistic how narcissistic he is as well that he doesn't remember yeah like he doesn't he's just like oh no i just don't i don't really remember where she is yeah either either he's withholding it on purpose or he legitimately doesn't give a shit he doesn't care yeah of course not of course not there's plenty of killers that we have covered that know every single detail about everything they've done to somebody and that's the thing like you see later on that like he does know every single detail about the ones that he's willing to confess to. Ooh. But some of them, he's like, I don't know. I don't know. Figure so, it like, out. I think you might be right. Like, he's withholding information. <sighs> In early August of 1975, Ted would become baptized at the Church of Jesus of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> Although he was not an active participant baptized. in the services and was known to ignore most church restrictions. <laughs> I had to put that in there. Jesus. Like, you're going to just just get baptized? Sure, fuck yeah, it. Yeah, because now he can say that. I've been yeah. baptized. Yeah, literally. I'm a good Christian. So annoying. Meanwhile, in Washington State, investigators were scratching their heads trying to figure out who this mystery man was that was continually... His name ad- is Ted. ...abducting and murdering women. <laughs> yeah. In fact, there was such an overwhelming amount of evidence that they decided to compile a database. Oh. They used the King County's payroll computer, known as a, quote, huge primitive machine in order to maintain everything needed after inputting all of the data they had compiled including classmates and acquaintances of each victim volkswagen owners named ted known sex offenders and so on they queried the computer for any coincidences out of thousands of names 26 turned up on four lists one of these names was theodore robert bundy so he's now one of 26 sus- like, prime wow, suspects like, in this just, case. Yeah, just based off of that. On top of this, detectives had also manually compiled a list of their 100 best sus- suspects, excuse me, and Ted was on this list as well. So they were, like, cross-referencing, yeah. it, like, essentially evidence that they might already have and also this this uh, Maybe the list. leads, like the calls, yeah. yeah. According to investigators, Ted was, quote, literally at the top of the pile, end quote, of suspects when they got the word that he had been arrested in Utah. <gasps> For what? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> On August 16th, 1975, Ted Bundy was arrested by Utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward in Granger, Utah. Hayward had observed Ted cruising in a residential area in a light-colored Volkswagen Beetle during the early morning hours, and when he pulled out to follow him... Ted fled the area, attempting to avoid being pulled over. Ted would eventually stop after the officer flashed his lights. 
Hayward would immediately notice the front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the rear seats. What? And this was worrisome enough to conduct a search of the vehicle. <laughs> Once the officer began the search, he found a ski mask, a second mask made from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and other items he immediately recognized as being burglary tools. It's a kill kit. It's 130% a kill kit. Yeah. For sure. When questioned about the items, Ted stated that the ski mask was, of course, for skiing. Duh. And he had found the handcuffs in a dumpster, and the rest were just common household items yeah. in his car. Oh, you mean these common household items in my car? Not in the house, in my car. None of the <laughs> household items. What? They're, yeah, they're normal car items. items. Car hold items. Yeah. Gosh, so stupid. See, he thinks he's, like, out- outsmarting everyone. Yeah. By saying things like that, mm-hmm. and then they're like, what the, f- what? What is that? Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, of course, it's for skiing. Oh. Yeah. This ice pick, it's for ice picking. Yeah. <laughs> picking ice. Picking ice. So the items were just far too suspicious for the officer to just let him go, so he would bring Ted down to the station to get a deeper understanding of what was actually going on. <laughs> what all this shit was in his car. Yeah, he's like, what the fuck? Upon hearing the news, Detective Jerry Thompson remembered a similar suspect and car description car description from the November 1974 kidnapping of Carol Durant, the survivor. Okay, yeah. He had also remembered Ted Bundy's name from what, one phone call that Liz made a month after that kidnapping. <sighs> because of these suspicions, police were able to get a warrant to search Ted's apartment, maybe, of course, other evidence like, you know, the household items in his car. <laughs> In doing so, in the apartment, they located a, quote, Guide to Colorado Ski Resorts page with a check mark by the Wildwood Inn. What does that mean? That's the hotel that the woman was abducted right. door from her fiancé. But he, like, checked it, like, I don't know if he checked my it, like, that's my plan, or, like, already been there. Already been there, done already that. Already done that, exactly. <sighs> they also found a brochure that advertised the play in Bountiful, where Deborah Kent disappeared from the auditorium. That's creepy. Although all of these things were extremely suspicious, they were still mostly circumstantial, and police did not have any substantial evidence to detain Ted. Right. Because of this, they were forced to release him later (gasps) that day. I know. But that's all they got in the apartment? Ted would later admit that during the search of his apartment, detectives had clearly overlooked a hidden collection of Polaroid photographs of each one of his victims. (laughs) Some fucking search you did there. Like, oh, God. Yeah, way to be thorough. It's worse than the dog. Because there's like photos of all of the missing women in my apartment. It's just, it's ridiculous. So, Ted was so freaked out about this run in with the law that he immediately burned all of the photos when he came back to his apartment. Oh, damn. Okay. So, the only reason they know that exists is because he said something about it. Okay. Although they did not have enough evidence to arrest him, Salt Lake City Police did put Ted on a 24-hour surveillance watch following this. Mm -hmm. Detective Thompson also flew to Seattle with two other detectives to interview Liz further on her relationship with Ted. She informed them that in the years prior to Ted's move to Utah, she had discovered objects that she, quote, couldn't understand in her house and in Ted's apartment. Like what? Among these items, surgical gloves, a sack full of women's clothing, crutches, and a meat cleaver that was never used for cooking. <laughs> it's just a... It's his prized meat cleaver. Yeah, it's just in my car. Yeah. I have gloves. Surgical gloves? I have... Okay, I well, have... I have surgical gloves, too, for my piercings, but that's that's not that suspicious. Yeah. But a sack full of women's clothing that aren't to dye my hair. Yeah. A sack of women's clothing is weird. And a meat Although cleaver Although I dated a guy used. who had high heels in his closet. 
<laughs> Maybe it wasn't. Hopefully it wasn't Ted. Was it Ted? <laughs> Teddy, Teddy. Liz would also inform detectives that Ted was continuously in debt and that she had suspected that he had stolen almost everything of value that he possessed. She explained that one time he came home with a new TV and a new stereo, and she decided to confront him about where he got them from. Yeah. She said his response to her was, quote, if you tell anyone, I'll break your fucking neck, <gasps> end quote. Yeah. You gotta run, girl. No, for real. You gotta run. <sighs> That's so scary. But, like, that explains, like, probably why she why wanted, she to, like, she was like, I can't around. break up with this fucking guy. Yeah. He will That's kill so me. That's so scary. Ugh. She also relayed that Ted would become, quote, very upset whenever she considered cutting her hair off, which was worn long, dark, and in a middle part. Long, dark, and in a middle part? That's, like, all of his victims. So she was, like, she could never cut her hair. Because he wanted her to look he like get his upset. Victims. That's so creepy. And so obviously that's in hindsight. Her? Like, he's doing it for her, or that's why he's attracted to her? I think that's why he's attracted to her. <sighs> Could God, you imagine that? Like, you having being in a relationship like that, where the, the significant other is like, you better never cut your hair. Well, you then never, imagine finding out, it, you know, the similarity of all of his victims, seeing, oh my God, all those girls look like me. <sighs> like, when is he going to kill me? <sighs> so fucking creepy. Do you think that he didn't kill her because she had kids? Because I feel like none of his other victims had children. Oh. No, I thought at least one did. Or maybe she did. I'm sorry. The, 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 um, not Denise on the beach, but, uh, was it Denise on the beach? No. The, the, what, Otto. Her last name was Otto. Jane? Jane Otts? Jane Otts, yeah. The, didn't she have kids? I don't think so. I she think was married. Hus- I know that her and her husband were just divorce. going through separation. I don't oh, think she had okay. a kid, though. No. I'm going to sound silly if she did, but. Yeah. Either way, that was just, I mean, he has so many victims, it's kind of hard to. Right. You know. Oh, obviously, I have them all written down. That but. is interesting, yeah. I don't know. But again, I do feel like it's a beard situation. Oh, for sure. I wonder if she was financially uh, well off. I'm sure she was. And that's he was why broke. he was... Yeah. So again, in, during this interview as well, Liz would continue by telling detectives that she would sometimes be woken up in the middle of the night by Ted to find him under their sheets with a flashlight, what? seemingly examining, like, her body. <gasps> yeah. Like, she'd be asleep... And be like, what the hell? Like, what the fuck is what that light? What the fuck light? is that light? <laughs> just rummaging around yeah. underneath the sheets? Yes. That's fucking creepy. She said he also kept a lug wrench in the trunk of her car, another Volkswagen Beetle, which he would often borrow from her. <gasps> do you think he, oh, do you think he used her car? I don't, sometimes? I think he might have. He said his reasoning for borrowing her car was, quote, for protection, I think her car was a similar color to his, which is why all the eyewitness testimonies are, like, off the color. Because his was yellow. I think the same thing with Berkowitz, because I think Berkowitz had, like, a dark brown, and then I think the the brothers, remember the brothers were suspected of also participating in this? They had a similar model that was tan. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, you're right. I do remember you talking about that. The car, John Carver, I think it was. After the interview concluded, the detectives confirmed that Ted had not been with Liz on any of the nights of any of the disappearances in the Pacific Northwest, nor on the day that the women were abducted from the lake. So, no alibi. No alibi for him and no blame for her or, you know, any kind of help. They suspected it because of the... Because of the Volkswagen that she had, to, uh, yeah, maybe? I don't know if they suspected her at all, but they were able to determine, like, okay, she really like has nothing to do with nothing this. She's with just it. trying to help. Yeah. Sometime after this interview, Liz was interviewed yet again by Seattle homicide detective Kathy McChesney, 
and during this interview, she would find out about the existence of Diane Edwards and her brief engagement to Ted around Christmas of 1973. Of course, right? Because the police are going to use anything. They're going to be like, look, he's not even faithful to you. You might as well just tell us everything. Exactly. (laughs) In September, Ted sold his Volkswagen Beetle to a teenager, but Utah police would quickly impound it, and FBI technicians would dismantle and search it. That poor kid, he's like, I just need a fucking just, car. No, I just paid 50 bucks for this car. Yeah. <laughs> During this search, they found hairs matching samples obtained from Karen Campbell's body. I just got heebs because I was thinking about being a teenager and, like, you think you're getting a great deal on this car, but yeah. pl- plenty of people have been murdered inside of it. Yeah, that's oh. really, it's really terrifying. They would also later identify hair strands, quote, microscopically indistinguishable from those of Melissa Smith and Carol Durant in the same mm-hmm. car. So it's like, okay, this is clearly like one like in a billion him. Yeah. FBI lab specialist Robert Neal concluded that the presence of hair strands in one car matching three different victims who would never who have never met each other would be considered, quote, a coincidence of mind-boggling rarity. I would yeah, they would have to be astronomical. That is but, yeah. such a brilliant way to put that. That is. Cuz like these women have never met each other. They wouldn't How know the each fuck other. Would they have all been in the same car. Yeah. It's not Without like, him. It's not like he was driving, you know, four girls around or whatever that yeah. all knew each other. On October 2nd, 1975, detectives put Ted into a lineup for survivors and witnesses to look through. <sighs> Carol DeRanch immediately identified Ted as, quote, Officer Roseland, and witnesses from Bountiful recognized him as the stranger at the Viewmont High School Auditorium. There was not enough evidence present to link him to Deborah Kent, whose body was never found, but there was way more than enough evidence to charge him with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault in the case of Carol DeRanch. Shortly after being arrested, he would be freed on a $15,000 bail paid for by his parents. Who he hasn't talked to in how many fucking years? I was like, he has parents? (laughs) His grandparents, sorry. (laughs) His grandparents. This would be the equivalent, you know, I did the fucking conversion rate, $84,793 today. I feel like that's not a lot if you've been convicted, like you're not convicted, but have been arrested in suspicion of murder. Even no, one... he, they only arrested him on the the kidnapping, aggravated kidnapping and criminal oh, assault. I'm so on sorry. Carol. Yes, yes. They yes. just have suspicions of the other stuff. Well, and they're collecting evidence, so they can't really slap him with it yet. And also, they're like, "Fuck it, let's get him behind bars for something, right?" Yeah. Instead of waiting until we have all this evidence. Mm-hmm. Ted would spend most of his time between indictment and trial in Seattle, living in Liz's house. Oh God! I know Liz, she's probably why? fucking petrified. Ugh. Seattle police had insufficient evidence to charge him in the Pacific Northwest murders, but would continue to keep him under close surveillance. Do you feel like she would have felt safer knowing that at least he's probably not going to do anything because they already suspect him of all these crimes? Yeah, maybe. But you're still living with him. Yeah, she would also actually later recall at this around this time, quote, When Ted and I stepped out on the porch to go somewhere, so many unmarked police cars started up that it sounded like the beginning of the Indy 500. <laughs> It's like, that's a hilarious quote. That is a great metaphor. I love that. (laughs) Go, Liz. Featured in Vogue, Forbes, and more, Alariz has the most beautiful and expertly crafted diamond jewelry for that special someone in your life. From engagement rings, pendants, and earrings, you're sure to find the perfect gift that expresses exactly how you feel. Click the link in the show notes to receive $10 off all orders plus free shipping. Alariz. Fitting all your jewelry needs from A to Z. In November, the three main men investigating Ted, so that's Jerry Thompson from Utah, Robert Keppel from Washington, and Michael Fisher from Colorado, all three of them met in Aspen, Colorado, to 
Hmm. Exchange notes. <laughs> Here, they would exchange information with each other, as well as 30 detectives and prosecutors from five different states. So many. How do you so fit everybody in a room? Right. It's like a whole task force. While most officials left the meeting convinced that Ted was the murderer they've been looking for this whole time, they also agreed that more hard evidence would absolutely be needed before he could be charged with any of the murders. Mm -hmm. In February of 1976, Ted stood trial for the Carol Durant kidnapping. His attorney, John O'Connell, advised Ted to waive his right to a jury due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. Ted would agree... And after a four-day bench trial and a weekend of deliberation, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. would find Ted Bundy guilty of kidnapping and assault. He would be sentenced to 1 to 15 years in June of 1976 in the Utah State Prison. Four months into his sentence, Ted was found hiding in the bushes in the prison yard carrying a, quote, escape kit, which included roadmaps, airline schedules, and a social security card. This guy loves to have kits. Seriously. Due to this attempted escape, Ted would spend several weeks in solitary confinement. (laughs) (laughs) Hiding behind a bush. That's so funny. With his little escape kit. His, like, alligator eyes. Yeah. I think of that George Clooney gif where he's, like, behind the bushes. Yeah. (laughs) Later that month, Colorado authorities had finally come up with enough evidence to charge Ted with the murder of Karen Campbell. After a period of resistance at the new charge, Ted would waive extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen in January of 1977 to face charges. On June 7th of 1977, Ted was transported 40 miles from the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs to Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen for a preliminary hearing. This time, he had elected to serve as his own attorney, because, you know, he's been to law school. He's so smart. And due to the fact that he was representing himself, the judge allowed his handcuffs and leg shackles to be removed. Mm. I think he's also wearing a suit, isn't he? Oh, yeah. He's, like, dressed for the nines. Dressed for the nines. No handcuffs. Anyway. During a recess in the court, Ted would ask if he could visit the courthouse's law library to do further research on the case. Okay, that makes sense, because he's representing himself. Why wouldn't he be able to, right? Ted would utilize this opportunity to shield himself from guards' view behind a bookcase, where he would then open the window and jump to the ground for the second story, (laughs) injuring his right ankle badly as he landed. Oh, no. Ted would take off the entire outer layer of his clothes and limp through Aspen. (laughs) God, God, what an idiot. Like, why, would why they wasn't anybody watching? The, they were watching, but he, like, hid behind a bookcase and then, like, <laughs> jumped <laughs> out the window. Yeah, he yeeted himself out the himself window. Out. God. <sighs> Although roadblocks were already being set up on its outskirts, Ted would evade them and hike south onto Aspen Mountain. So he, like, got away away. Oh, yeah. Nearing the summit, he would break into a hunting cabin and steal food, clothing, and a rifle. Great. Is it Ted Kaczynski's cabin? Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) So, again, he has a fucking rifle. The next day, he would leave the cabin and continue south towards the town of Crested Butte, but would actually become lost in the forest along the way. Yeah, because he's a lawyer. He's not a survivalist. Yeah. So. (laughs) For two days, he would wander around aimlessly on the mountain, actually passing by two different trails that would have led him to his intended destination. (laughs) Just just follow them. Where's that map he had? Yeah, he had a map. (laughs) On June 10th, Ted broke into a camping trailer on Maroon Lake, about 10 miles south of Aspen, and would steal food and a ski parka. This is only three days after. He made it, like, 10 miles. I can't even... I I don't know why I didn't know this about Ted Bundy. I mean, I feel like I knew that he had escaped through a window of some kind, but I didn't realize that he was gone for, like, three days. No, he was gone for more. 
<laughs> what? Yeah. So after stealing this food in Parka, instead of continuing south, he would actually walk back north again towards Aspen, still being able to elude roadblocks and search parties along the way. They probably he's think like he's a in Puerto Rico. Chameleon. Yeah, yeah, they probably think he's in Puerto Rico or Canada by now. Seriously. Yeah. Three days later, Ted would steal a car on the property of the Aspen Golf Course and drive back into Aspen, cold, sleep-deprived, and in constant pain from his broken ankle. <laughs> it was, like, broken, broken? I, th- I think it was, like, a really bad sprain. Yeah. Like, he didn't break it, but it was, like, yeah. really painful. Damn. Ted would be so disoriented, in fact, that it would cause him to swerve the vehicle extremely noticeably in the city and catch the attention of local police. No! <laughs> so good. Oh, my gosh. This is, like, a... This is, like, a... A movie. Yeah, it's yeah. a movie. Ted would be pulled over after being a fugitive for only six days. Found in this vehicle were maps of the mountain area around Aspen. Hilarious, because he got lost. The prosecutors were actually currently using that map to demonstrate the location of Karen's body. (gasps) So they kind of think he was, like, going to, like, find it. Unfortunately, because Ted was acting as his own attorney, he did have rights of discovery, so he was allowed to have these in his possession, so he couldn't really get in trouble. Mm. Although authorities figured that the fact that he had these maps with him meant that his escape was planned and not just, like, an op- like option of opportunity. Yeah. Ted would return to jail in Glenwood Springs, but he would ignore the advice of friends and legal advisors to stay put and remain calm. In fact, they indicated, kind of, that the case against him was, like, pretty weak, so if he had just, like, shut the fuck up and, like, waited, yeah. he might have been able to get a really low sentence or even be acquitted. It would have been all circumstantial. Because yeah. they were trying to say, like, significant bits of evidence were ruled as, like, inadmissible. Mm-hmm. So McCowd and Ainsworth were noted later as saying about this, quote, A more rational defendant might have realized that he still had a good chance of acquittal and that beating the murder charge in Colorado would probably have dis- dissuaded other prosecutors with as little as a year and a half to serve on the Durant conviction had Ted preserved, he could have been a free man. Yeah, unquote. he's a bad lawyer. Just like he's, he's, he's as bad a lawyer as he is a survivalist. He's fucking arrogant. He can't yeah. keep his fucking mouth shut. He wants no. to continue to talk, and he's going to talk himself into getting... Like, that's like someone that talks himself into getting arrested when they yeah. just get pulled over for speeding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he could totally... Yeah, he could have... He's using his powers for bad, right? Yeah, it's like exactly. he wants to push the issue because he wants to beat beat it, you know? Yeah, and, and he wants the up. attention. So rather than just chill the fuck out, like I wrote... Ted decided that he was going to assemble a new escape plan. He was somehow able to obtain a map of the Garfield County Jail, as well as a hacksaw blade from another inmate. (laughs) So this is not really a secure jail. (laughs) He would also somehow accumulate about $500 in cash. I don't know if it was, like, to take with him or to, like, maybe bribe the guards or something. Yeah, probably stole it from Liz. Yeah. During the evenings, while other prisoners were showering, Ted would work on sawing a hole about one square foot apart, like, in diameter, excuse me, between the steel reinforcing bars and his cell's ceiling. Okay. He would actually lose 35 pounds over a period of time in order to fit through the crawl space. That's creepy. That reminds me of that X-Files episode. He was actually able to work his way through the crawl space and explore it multiple times to, like, get the lay of the land before he even tried to escape. Did he draw a map? He seems map-obsessed. It's like prison break, literally. The map's like on his tattoos. Yeah. So even though there were multiple reports by a prison informant about noise coming from the ceiling, they were never investigated. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're like, oh, you're, yeah, you're crazy. Pest control out here for those raccoons. Exactly. <laughs> so stupid. By late 1977, Ted was still working on his escape plan, but he was also still working on his hearing. <laughs> he filed for a motion for a change of venue to Denver from Aspen. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, Aspen? Vail? Yeah, yeah, I think it was Aspen that they were having the hearing, though, because that's where he escaped from. Yeah. 
On December 23rd, the Aspen trial judge uh, granted the request, but not to Denver, instead Colorado Springs. Okay. Juries in Colorado Springs had historically been hostile towards murder suspects, so Ted was not looking forward to this. (laughs) That's not great. (laughs) On the night of December 30th, 1977, most of the jail staff was out on Christmas break, and nonviolent prisoners were even out on furlough to be with their families. Hmm. Ted piled books and a bunch of papers in his bed, covered them with a blanket to emulate his sleeping body, and climbed back into the crawl space he had been working on for months. Like Shawshank style? Yes. He would break into the ceiling onto the apartment, into the apartment of the chief jailer. He had like a, a combined apartment. Mm-hmm. Combined? Conjoined? So this guy was actually out as well for the evening to spend time with his wife. So Ted would utilize this opportunity to steal some clothing from him and mm-hmm. change into street clothes and just walk right out the fucking front door to his freedom because he was the no jail? longer in prison. Yes. Because he was no longer in prison clothes. They were just like, have a nice night, sir. They didn't recognize him, I guess. Maybe put a hoodie on or something. I don't know. Yeah. Just walked out. Literally, yeah. I mean, this is before you need, like, visitors' badges and shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So he's out yet again. Again. And after stealing a car yet again, Ted would drive eastward out of Glenwood Springs, but the car would actually break down on the mount- in the mountains on Interstate 70. LOL. Mm-hmm. A passing motorist came across Ted, remember, he's in street clothes, and mm-hmm. offered to give him a ride to Vail, Colorado, mm-hmm. so about 60 miles east. From here... Ted would catch a bus to Denver and even boarded a morning flight to Chicago. What? Like, how fucking wild was that, that you could just have an escaped felon board a plane because you didn't have, like, TSA or anything? (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's ridiculous. (laughs) God. So he had, like, a passport or an ID or something to Remember, he had that social security card. I don't know if he still had that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. show yourself? But you're... Ted fucking Bundy. No one knows who think, you are. Like I don't even think you needed an ID to get on a plane. I mean, this is like seventy fucking. Yeah, seven. what is DB Cooper? I don't know. Anyway, it's just wild that he was like able to fucking do that. Yeah. So he's on his way to Chicago, just like you know, on the flight, just like enjoying a drink. Yeah, just Ted Bundy. Back in Glenwood Springs, the jail skeleton crew did not even discover that he had escaped until the following day at noon, more than seventeen hours later. <laughs> By this time, he was already in Chicago. Like, he's already got an apartment. He's yeah. already got a oh, family, yeah. Yeah. kids. <laughs> From Chicago, Ted would travel by train to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he was present at a local tavern on January 2nd, according to eyewitnesses. Five days later, he stole another car and drove south to Atlanta, Georgia, where he then boarded a bus and arrived in Tallahassee, Florida, on the morning of January 8th. He stayed for one night at a hotel and then rented a room under the alias of Chris Hagen at a boarding house near Florida State University. He doesn't even look like a Chris. No, he doesn't. Ted stated later that he had initially wanted to find a legitimate job and refrain from further criminal activity at this point, knowing that he could probably like stay out and remain free and undetected mm-hmm. in Florida as long as he didn't attract the attention of police. Mm-hmm. But when he went to apply at a job at a construction site, he was asked to produce identification... And he didn't have any, so he mm-hmm. was like, fuck it, I'm just going to scrap this, go back to fucking yeah, danger. Fuck yeah, I'm going to yeah. go back to so, bail. To answer your question, he didn't have an ID. <laughs> <laughs> so he threw his res- resume away and reverted to his old habits of stealing money and credit cards from unsuspecting women at the grocery store, shoplifting, you know, the huge. And on January 15th, 1978, one week after Ted arrived in Tallahassee, he would gain access to FSU's Chi Omega sorority house. There was actually a faulty locking mechanism on the back door, which Ted took as an opportunity to enter. Ugh. At about 2.45 a.m., Ted would bludgeon a 21-year-old sorority sister by the name of Margaret Bowman 
with a heavy piece of oak firewood as she slept, ultimately crushing her skull and killing her. Oh, that's awful. He would then garrote her with a nylon stocking and ripped her underwear off with such force that friction burns were actually found on one of her thighs. After killing Margaret, Ted would walk directly across the hall into the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Levy. He would unfortunately then beat her unconscious as well and strangle her, leaving her alive but badly injured. Ted would actually slip up on his lack of leaving evidence in the past at this point. He would actually bite her on her left butt cheek and actually as well on her nipple, so there was like a distinct mark yeah that could match his teeth essentially i wanted to do odontology that was like one of the things i wanted to do so it's like matching dental records and bite and bite marks yeah i was i was gonna say that's really funny because i actually talk about odontology in a minute after the court proceedings and stuff i figured it was going there yes so unfortunately after this ted would then brutally sexually assault lisa's body rupturing her internal organs in the process as well He would then move on and go to 20-year-old Kathy Kleiner's room, who actually was in an adjoining bedroom with Lisa. He would brutally attack Kathy as well, breaking her jaw and deeply lacerating her shoulder in the process. Lastly, Ted would attack 22-year-old Karen Chandler, who would suffer from a concussion, broken jaw, a crushed finger, and loss of multiple teeth. This is what, the the fourth victim now in this one home? Or sorority, I guess? Mm Sorority house? Kathy and Karen would both ultimately survive their attacks, the last two women, Mm. and they would attribute their survival to the fact that there were actually headlights from a car outside that were kind of illuminating their bedroom. So they believe that since their room was brighter than the others, the attacker got spooked and decided to leave before finishing the job, essentially. Uh, They weren't wrong, as shortly after these attacks, Ted would flee the scene, but not before being spotted by another sorority sister by the name of Nita Neary. Go, Nita. She saw him as he was leaving. Yeah. Tallahassee law enforcement would later determine that these four attacks took place in a total of less than 15 minutes, (gasps) and within earshot of more than 30 witnesses who heard absolutely nothing. The amount of rage that he must have had. 15 15 minutes. 15 minutes to cause all that carnage. Right after he's like, I think I'm just going to get a job and be a nice guy. You know what I mean? Mad I didn't get my job. Oh, you want an ID? That sucks. Better go back to fucking murdering people. people. Yeah, exactly. Not long after Ted fled the scene, police would arrive and investigate, of course, because there was two survivors and a witness. Initially, the puncture wound through Lisa's nipple was so hard to determine that police actually thought there had been a shooting in the sorority house. Because it was, like, really deep. It was deep, yeah. Lisa would, unfortunately, succumb to her injuries shortly after police arrived and while she was en route to the hospital. So, two deceased, two survivors. Within an hour after these attacks, Ted would create a makeshift pantyhose mask that he wore to disguise his identity. He would then make his way to a duplex house that was only eight blocks away. There, he approached the basement window and climbed through under the cover of darkness. Inside, Ted came across FSU student Cheryl Thomas asleep in her bed at around 4 a.m. Ted viciously attacked Cheryl, dislocating her shoulder shoulder and fracturing her jaw and skull in five different places. Jesus. I know. Cheryl was actually a dance major at FSU, and although she would survive her attack, she was left with permanent deafness and equilibrium damage that ended her dance career. That is so fucking gut-wrenching. I would literally, like, I would be so fucking, like, angry. During this attack, for unknown reasons, Ted actually took his mask off and put it on the bed. 
Luckily, Cheryl's neighbors in the rooms adjacent overheard the ruckus and called police, who showed up to find Cheryl lying in her bed very badly injured, but no Ted. Because of the mask he left behind, though, which contained hairs of his, Mm -hmm. and the semen stain that was on the bed, though there was no evidence of sexual assault, it was very clear to law enforcement that this was the same attacker from the sorority house. I thought this guy was a fucking lawyer. This guy's a dummy. He is. Dummy. It's like, do you want to get caught? Because, like, now you're being really fucking sloppy. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. I don't that's know. The thing is, like, he just doesn't get... He's or maybe away he's like, I'm so in Florida. Long. Who the fuck's going to pin me to that? Like, right. Put me, connect me to the wherever. So Sheriff Ken Katsaris initially expressed a lot of shock and disbelief that the same person would strike twice in such a short amount of time. He was and like, so close no together. Way. Yeah, exactly. A few weeks later, on February 8th, Ted would drive 150 miles east to Jacksonville in a stolen FSU van. Mm-hmm. Like, obvious. <laughs> so inconspicuous. He, like, has their mascot on the fucking side yeah. of <laughs> In a parking lot, he came across 14-year-old Leslie uh, Parmenter. Ted would identify himself as, quote, Richard Burton, fire department. But got spooked and ran when Leslie's older brother actually arrived and confronted Ted. And he's like, I'm a real firefighter. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> Little did Ted know that Leslie and her son, her uh, brother were also the children of Jacksonville's police department's <gasps> chief of detectives. Yeah. So, they immediately told him, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) That afternoon, Ted would go 60 miles west to Lake City. At Lake City Junior High School the following morning, 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach was asked to go to her homeroom by a teacher to retrieve a forgotten purse, and she would never return to class afterward. Nearly seven weeks later, after a very intense search, Kimberly's partially mummified remains were found in a shed near Swanee River State Park, 35 miles northwest of Lake City. Unfortunately, forensic experts were able to conclude that Kimberly had been sexually assaulted before having her throat cut fatally. That is also his youngest victim at 12. Yeah, he had another 12-year-old. Yeah, I'm sorry, one of his youngest victims. On February 12, 1978, Ted was struggling to pay his overdue rent payment and was also growing very suspicious that the police were closing in on him. Due to the suspicions and fears, Ted would steal yet another car and leave Tallahassee for good, driving westward across the Florida panhandle. Again, so this is almost a month after he's escaped. Actually, Mm -hmm. more than a month. A month and a half. I wonder if they think he's just still in that area, because they already found him once in that same area. Yeah, I'm sure. Three days later, on February 15th, 1978, Ted was stopped by Pensacola police officer David Lee at around 1 a.m., do you remember when Hillary told us that Ted was arrested yeah. in Pensacola? I, it's so funny because I was literally just thinking that, but I was like, did I imagine that or Hillary yeah. said yeah. that? Yeah. So again, stopped by Officer David Lee. David actually only stopped the vehicle because of a wants and warrants check. Showed him They showed him that the Volkswagen Beetle was actually stolen because he had obviously just stolen the car. Yeah. And it's a Volkswagen Beetle, which is That's, so funny. It's his favorite. I bet it, I bet he just looks like a cool hippie guy. Yeah, you right. Know? But like also clean cut. But like those very were also successful. like, yeah, super common back yeah. then too, so... Yeah, you might as well just be, like, rolling around in a Brorola or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just Corolla, the most common fucking car. So David would approach Ted, and after some short discussion with him, informed him that he was under arrest because, again, the car came the back stolen. stolen. yeah. Ted would respond by kicking David's legs out from under him and take off running and, like, took off running in the opposite what? direction. Yeah. It's like, that's embarrassing. <laughs> that's embarrassing. <laughs> And, like, have you ever, like, gotten your legs swept out under you from, like, when you, like, yeah. that's scary. Somebody <laughs> like, dead, any dead legs balance. you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially if you've been drinking, you just crumble to the floor. Yeah. 
David would fire two warning shots at Ted and then begin to chase him, and eventually caught up to and tackled Ted to the ground. David and Ted were struggling over David's gun, but thankfully David was able to subdue and arrest Ted. After searching the stolen vehicle, police discovered three sets of IDs belonging to female FSU students, 21 stolen credit cards, and a stolen TV set. They weren't the sorority girl ones, though, were they? The IDs? Yeah, I think so. The students? The sor- the, well, not the, the sorority girls, though. Not the ones that he I I didn't say, that he honestly. Attacked. I mean, I, oh, assume, okay. I assume it might be. But either maybe. way, it's fucking creepy. Yeah. It's like clearly getting into people's bedrooms and shit. Taking yeah, shit. or it might have been someone, you know, he said he was pickpocketing like, pickpocketing, like wallets and That's stuff true. in the grocery store. Yeah. Than that. Also found in the car were a pair of plaid slacks and dark-rimmed non-prescription glasses, later identified as the disguise worn by Richard Burton Fire Department in Jacksonville. Plaid slacks? Yeah. I have plaid slacks. Don't judge. Yeah, when, like, well, <laughs> what color are they? They're, like, Red? gray and pink. That's kind of cute. They are cute. They're, like, it's leggings the 70s, though. Like, if you're wearing, bla- like, plaid slacks, you're probably going, like, golfing or something. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> me. Nah, that ain't me. That ain't me. As David transported Ted to jail, he was completely unaware that he had just arrested one of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives. <laughs> Ted was noted as saying to David during this car ride, quote, I wish you had killed me. <gasps> yeah. Who was that that we did a case on that and somebody's like, just kill me. You like, should have just killed me. You should have yeah. just killed me. Ugh, I don't Ugh. know. Being arrested in Florida, Ted would stand trial in Miami for the Chi Omega homicides and assaults in June of 1979. The trial was actually covered by nearly 250 reporters from five different continents, and this was the first to be televised nationally in the United States. I believe it. I believe it. Despite having about five court-appointed attorneys, Ted once again ass- insisted that he handle his own defense. No, I got this. I got this. I, got, I don't know anything about DNA, but yeah, I got this. Got <laughs> One of his assistant attorneys, Polly Nelson, would later write that from the beginning, he, quote, sabotaged the entire defense effort out of spite, distrust, and grandiose delusion. Ted was facing murder charges with a possible death sentence, and all that mattered to him apparently was that he be in charge, end quote. And he looked good. She's like, he didn't care about, like, doing a good job, like, right defending himself he just wanted to be the be, one that had the say because he thinks right. he's fucking smarter than yeah everyone. i bet he wore those plaid pants too <sighs> seriously <laughs> he probably fucking did he probably did and he was like i'm i'm gonna wear these goofy ass pants and i'm gonna win this case but honestly dude like how do you not take the advice of your defense attorneys seriously like how do you fucking just say uh no i got it like i went to law school they're like yeah well we've been fucking defending people for like probably Decades. years and years and years and he's like no i got it i got it i went to law school seriously but that's even uh, when you have a defense team it's a team for a reason a reason everybody's thinking differently exactly. and collaborate and like yeah that doesn't make oh god so he's like i'll allow you guys to work alongside me but like my say is final you're like, just for show yeah Be my assistant exactly yeah another tallahassee public defender and member of the defense team mike minerva i think is how you say it minerva minerva stated that a pre-trial plea bargain was actually negotiated. That would have Ted plead guilty to killing Lisa, Margaret, and Kimberly in exchange for a firm 75-year prison sentence. Prosecutors were actually really interested in this idea, mostly because, quote, prospects of losing at trial were very good, yeah. end quote. 
I'm not sure if this is like just because it was such a huge case and they had to ex- extradite and all that stuff, or there was just like so much evidence in yeah. such a little time with possibility of parole or no. Uh, no, just like flat, flat seventy five. Yeah, I think so. But either way, the prosecution was like all for it. Yeah. Ted, on the other hand, looked at the plea deal not only as a means of avoiding the death penalty, but also as a quote tactical move. Like your move, guy. Tactical fuel. Like what the fuck? He figured that he would just enter his plea, then wait a few years for evidence to disintegrate or become lost, and or witnesses to die. Just move on or retract their testimonies. This guy's not a lawyer. So fucking arrogant. He's like, I'll He's just wait them out. They'll yeah. eventually give up and I'll be crowned amazing and like, brilliant and yeah. I'll pull it out. Like, no. That's no. <laughs> not a fucking word. No. <laughs> Fuck. God, so annoying. He figured as well that once the case against him had just disappeared, he would file a post-conviction motion to set aside the plea deal and secure an acquittal. Like, that's not how that fucking works. <laughs> that's not how this works. Like, yeah. so even though this seemed like a genius plan on Ted's behalf, he actually ended up refusing the deal. So he didn't even go through with it. Good, because you're going to be found guilty and you're going to rot in prison. So Mike Minerva would later say, quote, it made him realize he was going to have to stand up in front of the whole world and say he was guilty. He just couldn't do it. Lead <laughs> quote. I like that end quote. End quote. End quote. <laughs> so during trial, crucial testimony came from Kyle Omega sorority sisters, Connie Hastings and Nita Neary, who could both place Ted in the house with the murder weapon on the night of the crime. It's like <laughs> God, clue. This oh, this guy. He was in the sorority house with the knife. Yeah. You know. Yeah. In the bedroom with yeah, the candlestick. Yeah. Of course, like we said earlier, the bite wounds left on Lisa's buttocks were very incriminating pieces of evidence along with her nipple mark. Forensic odontologists Richard Sorvin and Lowell Levine would match the bite marks to castings of Ted's teeth, which Mm -hmm. is, like you said, what you want to do, which is pretty cool. I wanted to do that, but you have to do do dentistry and forensics. Oh, that's wild. It's a lot. It's a lot of schooling, so, Yeah. yeah. After all of the evidence and testimonies were on the table, the jury would deliberate for less than seven hours before convicting Ted Bundy on July 24th, 1979, of the Margaret and Lisa murders, three counts of attempted first-degree murders, and two counts of burglary. So, attempted first-degree, yeah. Yeah. Trial judge Edward Coart imposed death sentences for the murder convictions. Six months later, a second trial would take place in Orlando for the abduction and murder of Kimberly Leach. Ted would be found guilty once again after less than eight hours' deliberation. This was mostly due to the testimony of eyewitnesses who saw him leading Kimberly from the schoolyard to his van. <laughs> like, it's like, okay, what the fuck? As well as the material evidence, like clothing fibers, which is like low cards exchange principle, what we right. were talking about. So kind of something like that. So something really fucking wild that happened during this hearing. I had no fucking clue about this. Are you ready? Like, it's not wild already. Yeah, this of is course. a wild story. So Ted would actually take advantage of an obscure Florida law at the time of the trial that stated that providing a marriage declaration in court in the presence of a judge would constitute a legal marriage. Okay. So you remember Carol Boone from earlier? Oh no, Carol. The twice-divorced mother of two who Ted Carol, started dating during his you, first round of murders. What are you doing, Carol? Well, since Ted was acting as his own lawyer... He had an opportunity to question Carol on the witness stand. <gasps> she had actually moved to Florida to be near Ted previously and had testified for him for the defense on 
the, the past two trials as well. Okay. This time, she was testifying once again as a character witness. During his questioning of her, Ted would ask Carol to marry him, and she would say yes. In front of the judge. They were In front of the judge. Married. Once she accepted, Ted would turn and address <sighs> the court, declaring that they were now legally married, according to the law. How romantic. I have, like, fucking heaves. <laughs> it's so romantic. Isn't that wild? <laughs> it's so wild. Like, you can just ask someone to marry you in court in front of a in judge, front, yeah. and they say yes, it's, and then you're legally married. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? All right, noted. <sighs> On February 10th, 1980, Ted was sentenced for a third time to death by electrocution. As the sentence was announced, Ted reportedly stood up and shouted, quote, Tell the jury they were wrong. Like, what? End quote. <laughs> Tell the jury they were wrong. This third death penalty would be the one that was ultimately carried out. So a bunch of the other ones got stayed, like yeah. the state of execution, and then this was the one. Wow. On October, I'm sorry, in October 1981, while Ted was on death row, Carol would give birth to a daughter by the name of Rose, naming Ted as the father. How's that possible? While conjugal visits were actually not allowed at the Florida State Prison, where Ted was being held, it was very known that the inmates would gather a bunch of money together and bribe the guards for, like, intimate time with their female visitors. So what? it's very possible and really well thought that Ted is the father of this child. Isn't, wasn't there another Rose in the story, though? DeRoach is her, the other one's last name, I think you're thinking of. Oh. Carol DeRoach. Oh, I, yeah, that's probably what I'm thinking of. Like, Rose. Mm -hmm. Shortly after the Kimberly Leach trial had ended, Ted would initiate a series of interviews with Stephen McCowd and Hugh Ainsworth. He was noted to speaking, he was noted as speaking mostly in the third person to avoid, quote, the stigma of confession, end quote, but he did begin for the very first time to relay details of his crimes and his thought processes throughout his life. So he was like, well, he did this and he, Ted did this. Yeah, Ted. He would ugh. say, like, Ted did this, which was fucking gross. That's creepy. He would recount his career as a thief, confirming Liz's longtime suspicion that he had shoplifted pretty much everything he fucking owned. <laughs> he would say about this, quote, The big payoff for me was actually possessing whatever it was I had stolen. I really enjoyed having something. That, had, that I had wanted and gone out and taken, end quote. Hmm. It was also something that he admitted to be a very important motive for rape and murder as well, possession. I see. He stated that sexual assault had fulfilled his need to, quote, totally possess his victims, end quote. He also explained that at first he would kill his victims, quote, as a matter of expediency to eliminate the possibility of being caught, end quote. And later, he would admit that murder became part of the, quote, adventure, end quote, which is gross. It's part of the adventure. It's yeah. a beautiful ride. That's, that's disgusting. Like, he probably thought that. Yeah. He probably thought this was, like, all part of the human experience. Yeah. He would also state about this, quote, the ultimate possession was, in fact, the taking of life, and then the physical possession of the remains, end quote. Oh, that's fucking nauseating. Yes. So remember way earlier I talked about a gentleman by the name of William Hagmeyer, mm -hmm. and I was like, I'll remember what he is later. So he's a behavioral analysis uh, in the behavioral analysis unit of the FBI. So okay. he was another person that Ted would confide in about interviews later in life or towards the end of his life. So according to William about Ted, quote, he said that after a while, murder is not just a crime of lust or violence. It becomes possession. They are a part of you. The victim becomes a part of you, and you two are forever one. And the grounds where you kill them or leave them become sacred to you, and you will always be drawn back to them. End quote. Ted would also confide in William that he considered himself to be an amateur or an impulsive killer in his early years before moving into what he called his, quote, prime or predator phase. 
at about the time of the murders in 1974. This phrase became very infamous because it implies that Ted indeed had murder victims before 1974. Yeah. So he's like, oh yeah, I was like really sloppy before then. So like, it's like he's willing to only take credit for things that happened after he got like good. Good at it. Yeah, which is like really gross. Ugh. In July 1984, prison guards would come across two hacksaw blades very well hidden in Ted's cell. He never learns his lesson, does he? Yeah. A steel bar in one of the cell's windows had also been completely like, uh, cut throughout the top and bottom and glued back into place with a homemade adhesive. Several months later, guards would also find an unauthorized mirror, and Ted was then moved to a different uh, different cell after this. An unauthorized mirror? <laughs> like, he wasn't allowed to have a mirror. Maybe, I mean, well, glass. Well, glass, yeah, yeah. Shortly thereafter, Ted would be charged with a disciplinary infraction for unauthorized correspondence with another high-profile criminal, John Hinckley Jr. Ooh! Ooh, did we talk about this one already? Uh, no, not really. But for those that don't know, John Hinckley Jr. was an American man who attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan, president, on March 30th, 1981, just two months after Reagan's first inauguration. We might talk about him in the future, but I just wanted to pepper that in there. Pepper that in. In October 1984, Ted would contact Robert Keppel and offer to share his self-proclaimed expertise in serial killer psychology. I am an expert oh, yeah. at serial killer psychology because I am a serial killer. Yeah. So he was offering to share his expertise on the ongoing manhunt in Washington for the Green River Killer, also <gasps> identified as Gary Ridgway. Identified, but that's his name. <laughs> he also identified as Gary Ridgway. Yeah. So we actually did an episode on uh, Green River, Gary Ridgway. We actually talked about this interview that Ted did. More in detail on that episode. So if you haven't heard that, jump on over and listen. So Robert... Keppel and the Green River Task Force detective Reichart, or Dave Reichart, interviewed Ted together, like I said in the last episode, that Gary Ridgway would remain at large for a further 17 years after this interview. So wow. clearly Ted wasn't that much of a fucking expert. Well, he's not a smarty. He's not. Yeah. He's not the most brightly colored crayon. Yeah. <laughs> March 4th, 1986 was the execution date set for the Chi Omega convictions. In April, shortly after the new date of July 2nd was announced, Ted would finally confess many more details about what he did to some of his victims after their deaths. He told them that he would revisit Taylor Mountain and other secondary crime scenes, often several times, to lie with his victims and perform sexual acts with their bodies until putrefaction forced him to stop. Forced him to stop? Yes. So, without being, like, too overly disgusting, like, essentially, like, it was, like, physically impossible. like For him to point. have, to... To sexually assault the bodies. Or, yeah. Because they were to so perform necrophiliac, like, yes. acts. Yes. That's fucking gross. Yes. He would also explain that in some cases, he would drive several hours each way and remain the entire night in those places, like, with his victims. Like, he would just lay down just wherever they were? Just fall asleep. Yeah. Or maybe not. He confessed that in Utah, he applied makeup to one of his victim's lifeless faces and repeatedly washed another one's hair. I mentioned that earlier. He stated about this, quote, if you've got time, they can be anything you want them to be, end quote. That is so it just makes you want to vomit, fucking right? Fucking disgusting. I'm literally covering my mouth right now. He also admitted to decapitating at least 12 of his victims with a hacksaw and would keep a number of their heads in his apartment before disposing of them. And I put that in there because of the friends staying at the apartment or the coworkers. Yeah, like, how do you not know? Like, how do you not know? It's not, like, their fault. I'm just saying, like, it's crazy. Less than 15 hours before the new date of execution, execution, execution on July 2nd, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals stayed and indefinitely 
his execution, and they remanded the Kyomega case review on multiple technicalities, including Ted's mental competency to stand trial. November 18th would be the new date that was set to carry out the Kimberly Leach sentence. Again, a lot of his execution dates kind of kept getting pushed and stuff. Yeah. He actually had a couple of other different stays, but an, an all-firm execution date was finally set for January 24th, 1989, and it was finally announced. It's like, we are not fucking changing this date. Like, yeah, this the judge was like, we're not doing it. Even the, I think the uh, governor was like, we're not fucking doing it. Yeah, exactly. Ted had such an insane ride through the appeal courts, in fact, that a statement was made. Quote, Contrary to popular belief, the courts moved Bundy as fast as they could. Even the prosecutors acknowledged that Bundy's lawyers never employed delaying tactics. The people everywhere seethed at the apparent delay in executing the Ark Demon. Ted Bundy was actually on the fast track. End quote. Damn. So he's saying, like, no matter how many times we've been pushing this, like, we're trying our fucking damnedest to yeah. execute it. Yeah, absolutely. With all the appeals exhausted and no further reason to, like, hide the fact that he did these crimes any longer, mm -hmm. Ted agreed to speak frankly with investigators. He would confess to murdering all eight of the Washington and Oregon women and would describe three additional previously unknown victims in Washington and two in Oregon, who he declined to identify. He also stated that he had left a fifth body on Taylor Mountain, like I said earlier, but it was never recovered. Robert Keppel stated about these descriptions, quote, he described Issaquah crime scene, and it was almost like he was just there, like he was seeing everything. He was infatuated with the idea because he spent so much time there. He is just totally consumed with murder all the time. End quote. Polly Nelson's experience was similar. Again, this was the one of the appointed attorneys that was mostly an assistant to Ted. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. You're just the assistant. Yeah. She stated, quote, it was the absolute misogyny of his crimes, his manifest rage against women. He had no compassion at all. He was totally engrossed in the details. His murders were his life's accomplishments. End quote. Ugh. I know. Ugh. That's that's so interesting about uh, Ted Bundy is that just the fact that, like he said, the um, not her, the defense attorney, right? Polly. Yeah. Uh, Robert Keppel. Yeah. When he was just saying like it's all consuming. That's, yeah. That's like it's just. He doesn't know how to be anything else but a murderer. Yeah. And that's just his job. That's it. That's his job. Yeah, Ugh, that's his thing. God. So due to all of these, like, last-minute confessions being thrown out there, there were a lot of questions being asked about whether or not Ted was going to be retried for any of these new victims. It became very clear that no further stays were going to be coming from the courts, and his execution date was not going to change again. Yeah. Polly Nelson stated about this, quote, the families already believed that the victims were dead and that Ted had killed them. They didn't need his confession. End quote. Damn. So they're like, fucking just execute him. We don't need to retry him for anything. Like, yeah. everyone already knows. Yeah. Florida Governor Bob Martinez made a statement as well. Quote, We are not going to have the system manipulated for him to be negotiating for his life over the bodies of victims is despicable. End quote. Fuck. So he was like, he's he's trying to give us all this new evidence so that we'll keep trying him, so that we'll keep him alive. Yeah. And exactly. we're not fucking doing that. We're not doing that. Carol Boone had actually truly thought that Ted was innocent throughout <gasps> his trials and was noted as feeling, quote, deeply betrayed by his admission that he was, in fact, guilty. His wife. What kind of bullshit was he feeding her? I have no idea. But she, like, moved down to Florida for him. She did a character witness at all Baby three of his trials. All that. As soon as he admitted his guilt, she would actually take their kid and move back to Washington and refused to accept any of his phone calls on the morning of his execution. Oh, damn, that's cold. She's like, fuck you. That's fucking cold. Yeah. 
I mean, not that he deserves it or anything. He yeah, doesn't deserve no, a fucking sure. phone call. But I, he must have just been fetting her some bullshit. Like, no, like, let's have a baby because, yeah. you know, eventually I'm going I'm I'm to get out of here. They're going to find me innocent one day. Yeah. On the eve of Ted Bundy's execution, it was noted that he actually discussed committing suicide. It is widely thought that he did not just want to give the state the satisfaction of killing him, and he would have rather gone out on his own accord. Theodore Robert Bundy was executed via electric chair at 7.16 a.m. on Tuesday, January 24th, 1989. His final words were directed at his attorney, Jim Coleman, and Methodist minister, Fred Lawrence. Quote, Jim and Fred, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. End quote. Like, fuck off. Like, fuck off. <laughs> Hundreds of onlookers sang, danced, and set off fireworks in the pasture across from the prison as the execution was carried out. They then s- celebrated as the white hearse containing Ted's body left the prison. He was cremated in Gainesville, and his ashes were scattered in an undisclosed location in the Cascade Range of Washington State in accordance with his will. So we can definitely go into, like, every single thing <laughs> that Bundy was diagnosed with, but in Probably reality, he's such an anomaly that there's really not one disorder that he fell under. Yeah. I will just say that the majority of evidence points away from bipolar disorder and mostly, and, and other psychosis and towards antisocial and narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. Dahmer had a, a pretty lengthy, yeah. um, yeah, diagnosis um, as well. Obviously he was a necrophiliac, paraphilic, you know, things like that. The list goes on. A lot of people think that he was a true psychopath or sociopath. But I just wanted to briefly touch on that. I will just really quickly go through a list of victims that were thought to be his but were not confirmed. These are going to be ones that I've mentioned earlier, but I just wanted to give them the, you know, acknowledgement at the very end of kind of talking a little bit more about them. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about those real quick. And the, you know, mental illness we could talk about for fucking days. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, there's Anne-Marie Burr. We talked about her in part one. That's the eight-year-old that vanished from her home in 1961. So this is... One of the ones, uh, but Ted was only 14 at this time, remember? Okay. The next are flight attendants Lisa E. Wick and Lonnie Ree Trumbull, both 20 years old. They were found bludgeoned with a piece of lumber as they slept in their basement apartment in June of 1966. There are many similarities to this crime scene and the Kyomega house crime scene, yeah. so people do think that it might have been Ted. Excuse me. Lisa would ultimately survive the attack, and unfortunately, Lonnie would pass away. Mm. But Lisa was noted as saying, quote, I know that it was Ted Bundy who did that to us, but I can't tell you how I know. End quote. Oof. I know. It's Ugh, like, like, you just have just that feeling. silhouette or something. Yeah. Next is Susan Marguerite Davis and Elizabeth Perry, both 19. These two women were both stabbed to death in New Jersey on May 30th, 1969. Bundy is considered a, quote, strong suspect in this case, but it's a bunch of circumstantial evidence. Mm. 24-year-old elementary school teacher Rita Patricia Curran was actually murdered in her basement apartment on July 19, 1971, in Burlington, Vermont. She had been strangled, bludgeoned, and sexually assaulted. Ted had told Robert Keppel that he had murdered a young woman in 1971 in Burlington, but he was never confirmed to be the perpetrator of this crime. 21-year-old Joyce LePage was last seen on the evening of July 22, 1971, when her friends dropped her off at an apartment on the campus of Washington State. According to reports, a, quote, yellow Volkswagen bug uh, was matching Ted's description, a person as well, was ma- <laughs> not the bug, the person, yeah. <laughs> and a person matching Ted's description, were both spotted on campus at the time of her disappearance, but he still does remain a suspect. Again, it's an open case. Carrie Mae Hardy, 22, disappeared while hitchhiking on June 24, 1972, from Capitol Hill, Washington. 
They initially thought that she was a victim of Gary Ridgway, but neither him or Ted ever commented on her case, Hmm. so there's nothing linking her to either of them. Rita Lorraine Jolly, 17, disappeared from Oregon on June 29, 1973. Ted did confess to those two homicides in Oregon without identifying the victim, so it's widely thought that he might have been the perpetrator behind this disappearance. Catherine Mary Devine, 14, was abducted on November 25, 1973, near Olympia, Washington. And Brenda Joy Baker, also 14, was last seen hitchhiking on May 27, 1974, around the same area. Ted is widely believed to be responsible for both murders, but he told Robert Keppel that he did not know either of these girls. I should say disappearances, not murders, because, again, there's no evidence right Right. there. 19-year-old Sandra Jean Weaver had been living in Utah and was lost in Salt Lake City on July 1st, 1974. Sources actually conflict on whether Ted mentioned her name during his death or interview, like, before his death or interviews or Mm -hmm. not, but, again, her murder still remains unsolved today. Melanie Suzanne Cooley, age 18, disappeared on April 15, 1975, in Colorado. Gas station receipts actually placed Ted at nearby Golden, Colorado, on the day that she disappeared, but, again, still a cold case. Go ahead. So, Cooley, her last name was Cooley, but she's, you'd mentioned her earlier in the podcast. Yeah, some of these people are ones that I mentioned kind of earlier briefly, but I just wanted to kind of put them down here yeah. just to remind everyone that they are still cold cases and yeah and uh you know if anyone obviously has any information like please call he actually was questioned about this next one and it's pretty interesting so shelly k robertson 24 failed to show up for work in golden colorado on july 1st the same day but when he was questioned about this case he said quote i don't want to talk about that so he didn't say like i don't know who that is or i know that, that wasn't me yeah i don't want to talk about that even though there's no direct evidence of his involvement. Right. And the case still remains open. Hmm. 23-year-old Nancy Perry Baird disappeared from the gas station where she worked in Utah on July 4th, 1975, and remains classified as a missing person today. Ted would deny any involvement in this disappearance, but it is thought that he might have something to do with it. And lastly, Debbie Smith, who was 17, was last seen in Salt Lake City in early February 1976. Ted is listed as a perpetrator by some sources, but her murder officially remains unsolved as well. Wow. So, a lot of victims, obviously, a lot of those people, we don't know for sure if he is the perpetrator or not, but I definitely wanted to, you know, write those down and make sure that I mentioned all of them, of course, because they are on a lot of sources that I was looking up, mm-hmm. and, you know, they deserve to be mentioned as well. Absolutely, so. yeah. But yeah, that's the fucking wild That is story. so wild. I think that's one of the more wild ones, wilder ones that we've done, that's actually. like, dude, it never I, stopped. I, I hate saying this because we love bringing you guys content, but, like, I am so ready to stop researching yeah. <laughs> It was a lot. Yeah. I mean, that took me, like, probably three weeks to research. I, I told you before we recorded that I had uh, Dahmer nightmares last night. Not nightmares, yeah. but, like, he had Evan Peters' head as Dahmer, but he was built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, my God. And he was standing in that apartment, like, in the Netflix show in front of the door. Like, you almost couldn't see the door frame. He was oh. so big. And he had his gla- but he had his glasses and everything. But oh he was my God, like, that's so funny. <laughs> but his body was like tan, like Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's hilarious. But because that's what he was into. He was into yeah muscular men, and so it was just stuck in my head. And I just remember thinking, Ugh, I'm in a dream with Dahmer right now. You know, like I gotta wake up. <laughs> God, it wasn't even like it was just because of the case and yeah. and thinking about it and it just being a part of your life. You know, when For you sure. research 
for stuff like this for so long you know yeah absolutely well thank you guys so much for joining us i i hope you guys like these longer cases i this this is my like proof that i had to do bundy in two parts because this is both like an hour and a half long episode (laughs) so thank you guys for for joining us if you made it this far we especially love you yeah thanks so much yeah come check us out at the check us out come see us at the paranormal podcast festival check out our social media is what i meant to say and keep sending us messages and requests guys we're getting a lot that are really great we're writing a lot down um Kowell actually already decided what you're gonna do for august's uh bonus episode oh gosh, and i so... am still debating on Ugh. mine i have something in mind for this month's 29th mm-hmm. but i don't know yet yeah but we'll definitely release that like we always do for the bonus we tell you guys like a week in advance who we're doing yeah we do a little so. teaser yeah but anyway lady is always the one that lady you're scaring us they're always the one that knows exactly what we're talking about yeah <laughs> exactly and i also just wanted to pepper in a little something that i'm really excited about i actually completed my application for my forensic psychology master's degree today so Yay! i applied for grad school today and hopefully i will get in so exciting and it's going to be forensic psych not forensic it's going to be an ms though so it's going to mm. be like technically forensic science yeah. but it's like it's forensic. It's not like a thesis. It's just like mm-hmm. a yeah, general exciting degree. But hopefully, I'll Good get stuff. accepted so I can start that. That's gonna be really yeah. cool. We're riding high right now for sure. Seriously. Okay. Well, we will see you guys on Monday with another Minty Breaky. And we love. We you. love you. Bye. Born and brewed in Southern California since 1963. The coffee bean and tea leaf has always been passionate about connecting loyal customers with carefully handcrafted products. Their coffee master, Jay Isaias, only selects the top 1% of Arabica beans from the world's best-growing regions, giving customers the best quality products every time. Whether you're looking for a dark roast to liven up your day or a soothing tea to relax into the night, the coffee bean and tea leaf has it all. Click the link in our show notes today to save 15% off your first purchase and get sipping.